0: Designers podcast. Here are your hosts, Timothy
1: and Renee. Hello and welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Timothy Meerhead, and I'll be your host today. Renee could not join us. Follow the podcast on Twitter at the ToneBenders or myself via at Azimuth Audio. Today we have some great guests joining me. First up we have Eric Adal. Eric is a sound designer based out of LA. His recent credits include massive blockbusters like Godzilla, the Transformers series, and World War Z as well as more subdued films like Argo and Tree of Life, and also animated features such as the Kung Fu Panda series. He's a multiple Oscar nominee for sound editing and also numerous Emmy and Golden Reel wins and nominations. Welcome to the show, Eric.
0: Thank you. Good to be here.
1: Joining Eric, we have Ethan van der Rijn. He is the owner of a very impressive IMDB page. Along with most of the films I listed for Eric, Ethan has worked on the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Pearl Harbor, King Kong, and countless others. He has a slew of nominations and wins in every major awards ceremony. We do not have time to list them all. And Ethan and Eric make up E Squared Sound, which you can find at e2sound.com. It's based out of California.
2: Ethan, glad to meet you. Glad to meet you and happy to be here.
1: Thank you very much. So do you want to just tell us quickly how you guys met and started E Squared?
0: Well, yeah, we met um, actually through a mutual friend of ours, um, Mike Hopkins, who sadly passed away a couple years ago now. Um, and I, I met Mike through a mutual friend, Helen Lettrell, who's my very first job ever in the industry. She's a dialogue editor and a New Zealander. And she knew Mike from, from New Zealand, and Ethan knew Mike from uh, working on The Lord of the Rings films. And that's how uh, it was Mike who introduced Ethan and me, and we'd been looking for something to work together on for a while, and then the first Transformers came along. So that was our inaugural journey together.
2: (laughs) And we've been uh, working together pretty consistently ever since then.
0: So you guys, at that point, were both freelancing?
1: Is that correct?
2: Yes, Uh yeah. Uh
1: And then what made you guys start E Squared?
2: Well, it it was basically a natural progression out of consistently working together as a team on a number of films and it just kind of grew out of the creative collaboration. And sort of wanting to create an entity that gave us a little more flexibility in terms of choosing the projects we wanted to do and you know, being able to do a full range of bigger budget movies as well as smaller independent films. And creating this sort of more formalized entity gave us the, the flexibility to to have more control over that.
1: You guys are known for big budget Hollywood blockbusters. But when I look at your IMDb pages, you guys have as many films with Michael Bay as you do with Terrence Malick. So those two directors aren't in the same sentence a lot. (laughs) I was wondering if you guys could kind of compare and contrast what you like about the Smash Bang Boom movies versus the more thoughtful movies, I guess.
0: Yeah, you're right. Michael and Terry are rarely in the same sentence, but what they both do share is a profound love of sound, which we kind of enjoy it. with any director that we work with that's kind of critical for us you know having a filmmaker who really wants to engage the soundtrack and do something special you know put some attention and love into it and they both really share that of course they're very different styles as well um <laughs> you know the difference do you want to talk about the difference of working on the art and the <laughs> and the
2: well blockbuster? you know um in some ways I feel like the, creatively maybe the differences aren't that great because of what Eric was just sort of talking about, how they both have this, this love of sound. For us in what we do in terms of you know going as deep as we can into whatever project in terms of exploring all the possibilities of, of what this movie can be, I think on a creative level, they're actually kind of similar. Maybe in terms of, you know, with Terrence Malick, the aesthetic is obviously much different than Michael Bay, but I think the process is similar for us in the sense that we're given a lot of freedom to just explore deeply and to try and come up with a fresh experience, which is kind of ultimately what we always are striving for in our work so aesthetically yes they are sort of on very different ends of the spectrum but in a funny way you know the process is actually similar because these type of directors tend to give us a lot of freedom and really want us to explore a lot which is something that we really love to do yeah it
1: must be nice to be given that creative freedom Something that I wanted to ask you about, which kind of ties into the Michael Bay aspect. I saw online a video of you guys getting some stuff printed onto vinyl for pain and gain. Uh, Do you want to tell me about that? Because that's such a great idea. and I can't believe that it hadn't been done before and it worked so amazingly.
0: Oh, wow. Um, I'm glad you noticed that. That's cool. Yeah, that, w- that was really fun. And it kind of came out of just inspiration from, you know, Pain and Gain takes place in the 90s. And, you know, you got Mar- Mark Wahlberg buzzing around in his Reebok high tops and the whole thing. And, you know, it's this era, this period time thing. And we were kind of thinking about just like hip hop and the style then and what we could do sound design wise um, to kind of reflect that. And there's a lot of moments in the film where you have like these flash freeze frames and you go into like slow motion or bizarre text splashes up on the screen. And we're trying to think of kind of a design philosophy that could tie that all together. And I don't know how we had the idea. I think it was just, you know, a lot of the ideas just kind of come out of nowhere. It's like a little serendipitous epiphany. And then you go, oh, yeah, let's try that.
2: Crazy dreams in crazy. the middle of the night. And you wake up in the morning and like, oh, what was that dream was about? That? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Printing sound effects to vinyl.
0: Yeah. So that's what we did. We just collected a bunch of our, our sound design that we'd been making for the show. Had it printed onto vinyl, um, I think it, one of our effects editors, P.K. Hooker, um, found a place to do it. And uh, we got the LPs back and then um, found a a DJ who specialized in scratching. And then we just re-recorded, you know, our sounds doing like various speeds, just, you know, with the hand on the record, like speeding them up, slowing them down, scratching them. And then that all became source for for those more stylistic moments in Pain and Gain. So how did you pick which sounds to get printed on the vinyl? We kind of did a bunch of stuff. We did. We kind of just threw everything at the wall just to experiment with it and see what would stick. We kind of started with stuff like stings and whooshes and just stuff that we're kind of making that could be transitional or whip us into a moment. Um, but then we started thinking it would be cool to use dialogue also, like taking lines from the movie. And you know, there's kind of an expressive end credit sequence. And we thought it'd be really fun to like hear you know, Wahlberg saying that's the American dream scratched up. <laughs> you know? there's something uh, I don't know,
2: metaphoric about that. <laughs> yeah, I do think it ended up being the most successful with with the dialogue. I mean, it really allowed you the um, the space to to hear the scratching, and, it, and yeah, I think that's where it was most effective.
1: You didn't have any temptation to get Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch vinyl?
0: <laughs> you know, there was originally there was a scene where they were playing some Marky Mark, and which was perfect, but for whatever reason it got swapped out. But yeah, that would have been fun.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I've heard you guys talk before about the idea of sound as abstract art. Mm. The vinyl kind of plays into that, the way that you don't use
0: literal things all the time with sound. Mm-hmm. I think by its very nature, it's an abstract art art, no matter what kind of film you're doing, because you are, you're using something that's different for what you're seeing on screen. And even the simplest sort of things like, you know, a movie that might be more realistic, like uh, the tree of life, and you're hearing these kind of drones in space, you know, uh, of course, that's not literal. And it, it might sound cosmic, but it, it's just me breathing into a microphone, you know, and then processed. So that's, t- completely abstract art, and then you look at the Transformers end of things, and... You didn't actually record a Transformer for that? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You just order them up (laughs) on eBay, and done. No, we'd use, like anything. The, the most bizarre kind of things, like my dog has been in every Transformers film and she's done vocals for Bumblebee and made her into uh, robotic servos. And, you know, again, that's just as abstract. And I think the general public and the audience just always, they're always shocked at what we do as sound people, like, wait, you didn't actually record that on set? And no, actually, the only thing that was actually recorded on set might be the dialogue and not, not a lot of it on big films. So in a sense, it's all kind of pastiche, you know, dada. <laughs> and so if you just accept that going in, then it's actually very freeing because you can just wallow in that expressiveness and there's no limits to what instrument you're using for a particular moment, the critical thing is what is that alchemy between the sound and the picture that makes it come alive and and tells the story and gives you an experience and a feeling that, um, get, we like to use the word goosebumps a lot. That's kind of our, our thermometer. Like if you get some little goosebumps, then we are on the right track. So, um, so it's freeing, that, that idea of um, sound as abstract art. You guys, in a perfect world,
1: find out you're working on a movie. You uh, get a script, you break it down, and are you guys working on the
0: film before you see picture normally? It depends on the film. Sometimes yes, uh, and sometimes no. The most fun projects are the projects where we get started very, very early before there's any picture, before the film has even been shot. That was the case with Godzilla. And we had years of development beforehand. And it's kind of wonderful and freeing to just be in the dark and playing, experimenting and just trying things out. And ultimately, you'll you'll start to build your palette, build your library for each show. Then when picture starts coming in, you've got like a strong starting point you can hit the ground running with.
2: It's also fun to see in those cases how the sound can possibly impact what happens with the picture when we're able to start before anything's actually been shot. A lot of times we're able to, to start working to animatics, which is great for us, and, and I think great for the filmmakers as well, because it really allows some of these critical scenes to really take shape and they can take them on set and show the actors, okay, this is how this is gonna play out. So to, to be able to sort of inject some real life into the picture before it's actually been shot, I think is just a, such a valuable tool.
1: Obviously, with animation, there is no principal photography in a typical sense. Mm -hmm. Because as I mentioned in the intro, you guys have done the Kung Fu Panda series, the Mastermind film. You've done a lot of animation films. Do you tackle them fundamentally differently than you would a uh, live-action film?
2: I would say no. I mean, I think for us, you know, the process is actually very similar for an animated as it is for a live-action film. The funny thing is a lot of the live-action films we end up doing sort of end up having a lot of animation. The Transformers films are a good example of that because you know, there's a, a huge amount of visual effects, obviously. I think creatively the the process is actually pretty similar for us in the, in the mm-hmm. sense that, you know, hopefully we're able to get started early in the process and start, you know, sketching up some critical scenes and then just sort of grow outwards from there as the picture comes together. So the sound is really happening in a parallel process to the picture editing. I think because of the, what we were talking about a little earlier about how we sort of have this philosophy and approach of of sound as a abstract but grounded in reality art, um, it it allows us the sort of this framework to work within, so that any project, whether it's animated, whether it's live action, whether it's Michael Bay or Terrence Malick or Mark Forster or whoever. We have this sort of philosophy and framework for for how our process works, and I think it, it sort of holds up for all the projects. And, you know, there are a lot of differences with how every project comes together because it's a different set of people and everybody has their own particular ways of working. And because film is such a collaborative art form, even though we have this sort of basic creative framework and approach that we take, we are having to reinvent the way we do things on every project because, because of the fact that no two projects are the same. And that's, that's really – we were talking about this yesterday. That's, that's one of the things that makes our work so challenging and, and, and so interesting, you know, is that every project is so different. Mm -hmm. For sure.
1: You mentioned earlier about how uh, you're looking to get the goosebumps. Mm -hmm. Uh, In terms of comedies, do you try and make each other laugh? Is that how you know the other one comes in and watches a scene you've been working on?
0: If he laughs, then you know you got it right? Or do you guys, are you working on the same scenes at the same time? Yeah, you know, it's kind of a combination. You know, sometimes we'll split things up. Sometimes we'll work on them together. What I really love about working with Ethan is that he's kind of the ultimately the toughest critic <laughs> I've ever worked with, tougher than uh, tougher than I think any director. And that's really fun. It's inspiring because, you know, if between and I'm opinionated, too, um, and very picky, very picky <laughs> about the, stuff. To
2: say the least. Um, <laughs> but so the combination. <laughs> I think what Eric's getting at is that um, we have some very strong similarities. We both have strong point of views and we don't have exactly the same point of view, but our aesthetics are very sort of meshed closely together, which I think is a good thing for us creatively. But we're not too closely meshed together that there is a lot of sort of synchronicity that can, can come out of us working together in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I mean, for me, w- the best thing about the work we do is, is the people that we get to work with. And for me, it's, you know, such a big part of it is working with people that inspire me to have uh, Eric as a creative partner who inspires me on a daily basis. You know, that's kind of the best.
1: Oh, thank you. Now I've got goosebumps.
2: <laughs> no, but it's true. And, it, and I say that about Eric, but also, you know, we have a big team of people working with us. It's not just us. We're kind of we're at the head of it, basically. We have a whole team of sound designers and editors, and that's one of the really great things about doing this work is being able to walk into different rooms and hear different scenes that various people are working on and, you know, get surprised and inspired. And Eric mentioned Goosebumps, and there's sort of, you know, very early in my career, one of the things I always tried to do for myself, moment to moment, sort of try and do something surprising surprising to myself because that was sort of my challenge that I always would set for myself was like I want to go on to the mixing stage and surprise the mixer or I want to play this for this person and have them say Mm -hmm. oh wow and but that of course starts with being able to sort of surprise yourself so if you work with people that you can feed off of in that way, that's kind of the ultimate. And I think a
0: part of that, too, is not being too precious with things. The process is, you know, keep working at it. Be willing to tear the building down and, and build it back up again um, if it's not quite working. And just be uh, have some the bravery and confidence to um, <laughs> ditch days of work if it's not giving you that feeling. And that's another wonderful thing about the crew we work with is everyone is game for anything. And I think the, the worst creative block you can have is like you've, you've spent all this time on something and then you're not going to let it go. And I think the key to it is like be the first person who's willing to let it go <laughs> you know, because um, there could be something better. And I think the kind of critical thing is just till the very end, the whole process be open be open yeah. to that, that experimentation process, and and don't think of it as this is my you know it's the concrete has set it's <laughs> you can't change it.
2: Yeah, I think that I think the word you know the key word we're talking about is process you know and mm-hmm. and the realization that all the work we do really is a process and a collaborative process. So the idea that it's constantly evolving throughout this whole process and refining. Until it gets to a place where it's not necessarily finished, but basically the time is up and so it's done. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Move on. That helps loosen things up if you can view it that way as a a sort of a a process. And at the same time, that being said, I mean, I know there are moments that you work on and feel like they work very well. And then you are going to fight very hard to make sure those moments get preserved. You know, there is that is kind of the, the flip side of it, of being able to be so free in terms of letting stuff go. But at the same time, I think because we do have strong opinions, we might strongly believe that some mo- moment, you know, is working so well that it really can't be changed.
0: Yeah, unless you can think of a way to make it better.
2: Yeah. And then the score arrives and just crushes everything. Well, no. uh,
0: <laughs> Well, you know, and that's and that's a, a fun thing about we've been very fortunate to work with incredible composers and wonderful music editors. And that's just as an important uh, collaboration as any part of making the track. And the earlier, the better having the communication and the back and forths. You know, one thing that comes to mind is Kung Fu Panda. We've spent some time with Hans there's this one sequence which we call the chopstick Fight, um, which I think is my favorite scene from that movie and it's it 's basically like this whole kung fu little battle, but over a dumpling uh, between Po and Shifu, the master and the trainee and it 's this whole rhythmic kind of intricate thing, and so early on, we were talking with Hans as to how to approach this and You know, we figured out, okay, you know, it's all about the rhythms. And so all the sound design and the music, tempo-wise and with beats, needs to fit perfectly together and dovetail um, like an intricate orchestral piece. um, Or actually more than an orchestral piece, maybe more of like a drum solo. You know, like a lot of kung fu battles, you know, it's all about the rhythms. And that scene was all about the rhythms. So that was critical to work on that earlier. And the, also the wonderful thing about animation is the animators are like natural musicians or dancers. You know, there's the best animators have built in rhythm to the visuals they're creating and how they're timed. And, and oftentimes it's so effortless to um, find kind of those rhythms within that, you know, to create kind of holistic sequence.
1: There's a film that you guys worked on, uh, the G.I. Joe. In the movie, there's this amazing cliff battle on the side of a cliff. Mm -hmm. There's a chase scene down to the cliff wall, and then everything stops, and there's a long shot of the cliff. You just hear a bird in the distance, and then all hell breaks loose again. (laughs) this like awesome take your breath and then we're right back into it yeah is that something that you guys
0: try and build into things yeah well you know john marquis and and toby pope um were the, kind of the creative leads um on our team on the on that show working with us and yeah and a lot of that you try to build in right away you know as you're going through the movie like oh this would be cool like let's create a suspended moment here and just What's wonderful about that moment, too, is it's got some dynamics to it. So, you know, you've got all this action raging and then you suck the air out of the theater, which, you know, I just imagine audiences just leaning forward, you know, and whenever you can create that negative space, you know, and suck people in again. That's a good thing. You know, we always talk about peaks and valleys. And if a track is all peaks, then there's no peaks. It's just a plateau. (laughs) So you need those valleys. You need to see the bottom of the valley before you can really appreciate the top of the peak. And with that sequence, a lot of that was um, Greg Russell and and Scott Milan as well on the mix, totally embracing that idea and taking it up a few notches.
2: I think about, too, about the director, John Chu, who has this background in doing dance films and choreography. So you can totally see it in that film because it is really like a sort of giant ballet, sort of, you know, cliff ballet. I I think a lot of that, the rhythms that are happening there come from him. But I do also want to say that I think the idea of creating space is something that's, you know, so important, especially so in action sequences or action films, which we do a lot of. And I think that's something we always, you know, at the very earliest stages are thinking about where we can create beats and, and suck, suck out sound and allow the audience to reset because, you know, it's so easy to fall into the trap of more and more and more, just keep, keep building and building and building. Um, and a certain point uh, you need to reset, you know, and then build again and then reset again. And these, these these beats these moments that we can find to to get very simple and very focused allow us to do that
0: it reminds me kind of of one of our stylistic philosophies uh, which is simplicity and keeping things clean and as soon as you start layering too many sounds you you begin robbing the essence of the original sound and with big action you know a lot of it is okay what do you edit out or not edit in not just what you're putting into the track? What are you stripping out of it to create that kind of purity and um, keep the essence of the one sound you need rather than the 20 sounds that just turn each other to mud? That's one of the hardest things, you know, if I look at a session and I see, you know, 500 tracks jam-packed with audio, like, just visually, I don't even need to hear it visually, I can tell, like, okay, this is probably, this is going to be a little muddy, this is going to be a little brown, and, you know, if you can look at your Pro Tools timeline and see just one sound, (laughs) that's, there's this great line from Ray Charles, and somebody was asking him, like, when you're doing your music, how many tracks do you use, you know, and Ray Charles was like, no, that's the wrong question, it's like, you can be using 70 tracks or one track but how does it sound and you know ultimately if you can get down to that one piece that tells it all that that's the ideal you know i think about all my favorite sound effects from movies and they're not like these layered complex things it's like just one you know r2d2's little whistle it's just one sound you know that's one of our stylistic challenges, and it actually, in many ways, makes it simpler to make a good track. And it makes, and it, uh, it's also just a lot quicker to keep it tight than uh, try to track all of these tracks that you might not need.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of interesting to think about, you know, all the advances in terms of the tools we have and how it's opened up a lot more possibilities and, and, and options, which is a good thing, but also, you know, not a good thing. You know, what we're talking about in terms of keeping things simple, in some ways, when you only had 16 voices and Pro Tools, it forced you to, to keep that aesthetic of like, okay, what sound do I really want to be hearing in this moment? As opposed to, well, I can hear this sound layered with this sound <laughs> and this other sound. Um, so it, it's kind of interesting thinking about that. And sometimes we think about, you know, maybe, maybe we should just start limiting the number of, you know, <laughs> right. the number of tracks that we get to use because, I mean, it's great being able to have everything virtual, but at a certain point, too many tracks, too many possibilities is, is not a good thing.
0: In film school, we cut, f- you know, five-track, 16-millimeter mag. That was our, mi- our senior mixes. Were <laughs> and so you have to make all these choices, you know. What, what's really important in this moment? And, and what's just me being not confident, you know, and trying to overcompensate for not having the one right idea?
2: It's kind of interesting just thinking about the the whole change from analog to digital editing. I mean, on the picture side, I think it exists in terms of when picture editors were cutting on film, I think they really had to imagine in their minds much more deeply, you know, how cuts were going to work together before actually making the cut because it's not as easy to to move things around as it is now having it all being, uh, you know, an electronic editing um, and I think the same idea applies on the sound side, where when editors were working analog, one sound at a time, they really had to, in their minds, imagine how all the different sounds were going to fit together. You know, in this sort of giant jigsaw puzzle that was all sort of taking shape in their in their heads, and they really wouldn't be able to hear it all together you know, until they hit the stage. That forces your mind to work a little bit differently when you have to use it to imagine how things are going to play together, as opposed to just being able to start playing them together. And sometimes I wonder about how that's changed, you know, what we do.
1: While you're physically cutting and taping and everything, because of just the amount of time it takes forces you to be thinking about the bigger picture instead of just constantly slapping sounds on the timeline. Right. Mm -hmm. You're... Immersing yourself in the bigger ideas of the film. The first two years of my film school experience were all cutting on mag and such, and then we made the jump to Pro Tools for the next two. I found that with Pro Tools, you immediately throw everything at the wall. Like just put everything in. Where with the the mag and the dubbers, you were like, ah, oh, I, I don't have time to cut 50 things. Yet. Well, not you don't have tracks either, but you got to find that perfect moment.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. No, and I see that your handle is azimuth, so I you yes. got some mag background. I remember aligning azimuths on... Uh, for sure. <laughs> I can tell how old
1: someone I'm talking to is based on if they ask me what that word means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. So speaking of uh, picking perfect sounds, I wanted to talk for a minute. I'm jumping kind of from movie to movie here, but uh, for the movie Argo, mm-hmm. that kind of movie is kind of a sound man's dream because a lot of time the picture is just two guys looking at each other, yeah. and all the tension and all of the stress that that movie induces in the audience is almost all through the sound, because picture-wise they're limited in what they could show. It's people hiding underneath the floor. It's you know just walking through the trade market and mm-hmm. how you guys approached a film where uh, it's not syncing exact sounds to the cut, mm-hmm. but creating more of a feeling of tension.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, that was one of the wonderful things about Argo, um, was it had these longer arcs. And, um, you know, and a lot of that came from, I mean, that was really how Ben Affleck wanted the movie. And uh, the picture editor, Billy Goldenberg, you know, it's interesting. We read the script and we were heading into the picture department to see um, kind of the rough cut of the opening sequence. Big protests in Tehran, you know, 1979, and uh, they're at the walls of the U.S. Embassy and the walls get breached and the embassy is stormed and starts this whole drama and we're watching the scene and uh i remember just getting you know getting goosebumps and feeling tears in my eyes cuz it uh, it was it was constructed in such a real way and instantly both Ethan and i were thinking okay if if we're going to really play this real we're going to play it with just all sound you know the first 8 minutes really shouldn't have score this could be so visceral and and real. And before we could even say it, Billy's like, oh, yeah, and I want this all to just be sound design. (laughs) And we're like, oh, score.
2: (laughs) With that moment, we knew we were in for a really good experience. Yeah. Um, You know, that's such a such a treasure when (laughs) to know that the reaction we have um, is is what they're, you know, the director, the picture editor are already thinking because
0: we usually have to pitch these kind of things. And, uh, you know, it was pitched to us and we're like, oh, beautiful, perfect. You know, so we kind of took that approach. We're telling this story and creating this emotional experience through the sound. And it's not just cut, 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 cut. Here's something, you know, little punctuation marks here and there. It's like instead it's one big wave that takes you through, you know, many minutes of story. And for the tension of the film, it was kind of a dream. You know, we could take, you know, we did a lot of recording and got a lot of um, uh, native Farsi speaking extras out to start creating the Tapestries of kind of walls and crowd chants and and uh, you know obviously the opening sequence the crowds and the chants are you know the the big player um, but also later in the film as our characters are going through the um, Mirabad airport and trying to get on their Swiss Air flight to get out of there we just have these long scenes where they're just waiting for us we could just you know we could take the crowd sounds the din the mass of humanity. And then just over instead of just over like five feet of film, over like 200 feet of film, just start slowly sucking it out, you know, sucking the sound out and muting it. So now we're going internal, but it's so slow that you don't notice it or an audience doesn't know that they're being manipulated in that way. And then you just kind of like you start to hear yourself breathe because the rug has slowly been getting pulled out from under you until you're silent. And then, poof, the passport stamp snaps you back into reality and everything's yeah, yeah, yeah. going again. Oh, yeah. I've got a letter from
2: the Ministry of Culture. If you want to. Yeah.
0: I love that experience of having long arcs. And, um, you know, that's also something that the re-recording mixers, um, Greg Rudolov and John Wrights, um, completely embraced that. And um, and that's... I'm using the word arc, but it was uh, Greg Rudolov who, when we finished that film, he's like, man, these are like such nice, long (laughs) arcs. So I got to give him credit for that term. (laughs) So when you guys
1: envision a scene like that with things slowly coming out Mm -hmm. are you doing a premix in your session uh
0: it's it's a little bit of both um yeah we had mocked up our tracks to to do that and then when you hit the stage um it can be often done better (laughs) you're you're in a nice big room and you can really you know get it more accurate and more dovetailed and working with everything um so it's a combination. But certainly when, when we're working in Pro Tools before we hit a mix stage, we're designing the track the way we think it should be. So um, we're, we're, we're never in a state where we're like, oh, we'll wait to do that, you know, until we get to the stage. We're, we're going to do it now. We're going to make all those choices that we think are right. You know, knowing very well we might undo a lot of it or change it. Um, you know, that's part of the flexibility of working virtually also. Um, we, we want it to sound the way we want it to
2: sound. I just want to add on to that, I think it's also part of the flexibility of not just working virtually but also working electronically, you know, talking about the differences between, you know, working in the old days with Meg and now we cutting in Pro Tools. Working in Pro Tools does allow us to do is, is commit to a certain shape. And it, it allows us to, like Eric's saying, we, we're going to make this scene play in its entirety the way we think it should be played. And we're not worried about committing to that because it's so easy and so quick for us to change it, to take it in another direction. And so that, I think, is a really great thing about, you know, how we're able to work these days where we don't have to feel like we have to cover everything six different ways and, and have all these different options for how it can go. Um, because we know that on the stage or on the day or at any point in time, we can really sort of quickly take it in a different direction, and that's that's very kind of liberating.
0: Yeah, and, and part of our process, too, is as we're working the whole way through, we're bouncing down our work and sending it to the picture department, so there's a constant back-and-forth flow of information, and so we basically built the track, you know, before we hit a mix stage, and so there's no, like, surprises, and, you know, there's this term like temp love, you know, um, which everyone you know would struggle with for for so long and now that's like not as much an issue because the temp is our track and picture's been living it with it for months and directors heard everything they're not hearing it for the first time on the dub stage so all these kind of choices um, get kind of hammered out through the process as we're evolving the track
2: where temp love does still have a big impact is, is in terms of the music right and that's because of you know the fact that Basically, the music is still usually done very late in the process, and you're living with you know, temp music tracks through a longer part of the process than you are living with temp effects tracks.
0: Yeah. And ideally you'll get mock ups from the composer as early as possible. So at least you see, okay, this is the key that we're in, and we can tweak our sound design to be in the same pitch and here's the rhythms, the tempos going. Okay, let's make sure our beats aren't flamming and you know everything is integrated. And so the earlier we can get mock ups, the better. But these days, um a film usually isn't scored until I mean the last few films we've done they it's we've been in starting the final when, you know, and they're still scoring. Um, so uh, the, the more mock-ups you can have beforehand, that kind of gives you a better roadmap for how everything's going to fit
1: for sure. I don't think Ethan worked on this film, but Eric, what was it like working with RZA?
0: Oh, (laughs) with RZA. Um, yeah, man with the iron fists, uh, dude's a cool guy. He's an interesting (laughs) cat. Um, and that was a really, really fun film. Totally stylistic and you know one of the things one of the first reviews we had with Riza, he's like we were playing kind of the opening montage sequence there's this badass fight that starts out the movie um, with some awesome Wu-Tang Clan music raging and uh, Riza came in with some friends and First thing he said, he's like, Yeah, it's great, but more bass. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, okay, we know how to do that. All right, more bass. You got it. <laughs> a little bit of a different uh,
1: attitude than Malik, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, for <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. Man with Iron Fist was more the sledgehammer, and Mal- Malik was, um, you know, more of a gentle paintbrush. <laughs> So when you guys are working on a film, it comes down to the mix and
1: you're, I'm assuming, working long hours. Do you guys build into your schedule breaks between films or are you guys going
0: right from one project straight into the next? Ideally, there's breaks. You know, sometimes there isn't. (laughs) Um, Sometimes we don't get a chance. But ideally, there's breaks. You know, part of of the thing about running a company, too, is you don't want too many breaks. (laughs) You want to hang on to your crew and better busy than bored. But, uh, yeah, there have been some situations where we've jumped right off onto a final, onto another thing, and, you know, you're on, like, day 80 and, you know, without a day off.
2: It's worked out the past couple years, though, where we've had some nice breaks in the summer, which have Mm. just sort of, um, you know, it just sometimes turns out that way. Uh, I don't think this summer will be that way, but, you know, that's one of the interesting things about this business is it's all just everything is project-based, and that's what keeps it interesting. Yeah, I think sometimes we wish we could build in more breaks than we're able to. You know, it all ends up working out.
0: I used to, when I first started working on films, I would demand four months off uh, a year. So I would just refuse work just so I could go do my own thing and travel and record and do photography.
2: When I first started working on films, I was forced into taking four months off before between <laughs> films. <laughs> which, which uh, you know, I thoroughly enjoyed, but at the same time, it's like, you know... And in, in the beginning, it was like, okay, that was great, but when am I going to work again?
0: Well, that's one of the things, too, about, like, you know, I remember this, the freelance days where, um, you know, you, you're trying to line things up. And, you know, you you got to stay solvent also and pay pay the rent or the mortgage, whatever. Low, and, keeping
2: low overhead, man. That's the, that's the key to being <laughs> a freelancer.
0: Live in a tent. Yeah. Uh, I just have another quick question for
1: you, and then I'll let you guys go. Uh, I was wondering if you guys could tell me a bit about Mike Hopkins. You guys mentioned him earlier. Just tell us a bit about him because uh, I think some of the people who are uh, younger listening to this podcast might not know who he is. And I think everybody should. Yeah.
2: yeah. So Mike Hopkins was, he was basically the premier sort of sound editor in New Zealand for many years. Um, he kind of came up working with uh, Peter Jackson on, th- you know, with P- on Peter's earliest films and I met him uh, when I first went to, down to New Zealand to, to check out the Rings films as they were in progress, as they were being shot, to talk to the guys, talk to Peter and, and the other people about working on those films. Mike met me at the airport, and he was just this sort of giant of a, a guy, very tall and lanky, and came from the countryside in Picton on the South Island where, you know, raised on a farm. So he was a little rough around the edges. Um, He had like one of the biggest hearts of anybody I know. And he was just so gracious. I mean, like one of the things we started talking about in this conversation was the idea of collaborating with people who can inspire you. And um, I think that goes beyond, um, you know, inspiring you in terms of the creative, you know, work we do on films, but also maybe inspire you in personal ways. And uh, Mike definitely had that for me in the sense that he was the definition of like brutally honest, <laughs> um, which I really value and appreciate in, in people. So um, yeah,
0: passionate, you know. passionate guy and just just full of life and energy and and passion and we had a lot of good times. We today. had a, just a lot of lots a lot of good times. <laughs> great conversations and New Zealand drinking songs and <laughs> the, yeah,
2: yeah So he was a really colorful character and um, you know very uh, you know an important um, person in, in, in the New Zealand film industry. Uh, and then he came uh, he came and worked with us. Um, after we finished King Kong in New Zealand, he came over. To LA and uh, worked uh, with Eric and I on uh, the Kung Fu Panda and then the Transformers movies. Um, so yeah, just a just a really strong uh, personality, super creative, super collaborative, um, huge heart.
0: Yeah, I think I mean I I probably knew Mike um, five six years b- before we'd ever worked together. We were more like social fr- friends and. I'd see him when he'd come over to the States, and then when he did kind of finally move over here, that was closer to when we all first started working together.
2: One of the interesting things about Mike is that, um, you know, he had this pretty profound stutter um, that affected him, you know, most of the time. But, so, and his specialty, um, you know, became, came to be uh, working dialogue and ADR. But he is fantastic on the ADR stage and very, very good with actors and very good with directing. And it was so interesting because when he would be directing actors on an ADR stage or in one of the open, you know, outside ADR recording sessions that we would like that we did a lot of. When he was directing, the stutter would completely disappear and he would really, you know, you could see him come into his own and uh, that was you know it's just such a beautiful thing to be able to to witness
0: yeah and and he was uh, yeah a great performer I mean we we did a lot of recordings with Mike too you know using his voice for he had this really great rich gravelly voice we'd use him for Decepticon vocals and he did a ton of bumblebee vocals for some of the more emotive stuff so there's a little piece of him in there I think we put him in uh, Pain and Gain as well. He had just passed away, and we were, had started Pain and Gain, and um, the, for, the, for the logos, you see kind of these dumbbells crashing down and kind of a male <clears throat> effort, and that's, uh, that's Michael in there.
2: Yeah, all, all just pure passion. Yeah. Yeah, we miss him. For sure.
1: Well, thank you very much for coming on the show today. You guys have been really uh, insightful. And uh, I always love talking to people who are uh, working on the top of the line shows and uh, see how they think and try and steal some ideas from you guys. So <laughs> thank you very much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, it was fun. We'll talk soon. Great.
2: All right. Great. Thanks, Thanks for having us.
1: It was super awesome of Ethan and Eric to take part in that interview. It was tough to nail them down between when I first contacted them and when we finally did the interview. I think there was three months of going back and forth trying to find a time that they were both available at the same time so we could do that interview. So it's very much appreciated that they made that time to talk to us because it was great to pick their brains and uh, see how they think. Now is the time when I have to do the first bender's retraction. Unfortunately, we made a mistake, and uh, we got to tell you about it right now. In episode 32, when we were announcing the Soundsnap.com giveaway, I mentioned that if you became a member of Soundsnap, if you got the annual membership, you got the full BlastWave library, and that is not true. Oops. Yeah, oops. Uh, So it turns out that of the BlastWave library, which is over 63,000 sound effects, Only uh, a very small portion of that is available on SoundSnap. So there are BlastWave effects on SoundSnap, but it is by no means the entire library. It's like, I think, uh, under 3,000 of the 63,000 that are on the Blast Drive. if you were to get it. The people at BlastWave contacted me and asked me to uh, correct that because they had people saying, why would we buy your full library when I can get it for this annual pass on SoundSnap? And the reason you would get the full library is because you can't get it with the annual pass on SoundSnap. You can only get an extremely small portion of it. So thanks to BlastWave for reaching out and letting us know that we made that mistake. Uh, They've been good to us, actually, at the podcast, uh, so we want to be good to them, too. So please, if you uh, are thinking about getting the BlastWave product, go out and get it, and do not avoid it because you think you can get it all with the SoundSnap because you just can't. And again, SoundSnap, uh, those winners have been pulled and identified, and everything is good. So uh, if you have not heard from us, that means you did not win that contest. Sorry about that. Okay, before we go, I just want to send out a big thanks to everyone for all the help spreading the word for our previous episode, our Mad Max episode interview with Oliver Matchin about how they recorded the sound effects in the desert there for all those amazing vehicles. Uh, We got a lot of amazing feedback and I think that it was a really fun episode to record. I really had a great time with it. If you uh, want to see pictures from the record sessions of the vehicles in the desert, since we released that episode, we've got a whole wave, I think there's 30 or 40 pictures that we got of the process of them miking up the various vehicles and such so you can go to our website tonebenderspodcast.com navigate to the page for the episode about Mad Max there and you can see a whole bunch of really cool pictures of uh, Oliver sitting <laughs> in very very tight spaces while recording these crazy vehicles so go check that out when you get a chance and I think that's it for now so thanks for listening see you next time and uh, we'll talk to you soon
2: Thanks for listening to Tone Vendors. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to tonevendorspodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at tonebenderspodcast.com.